You're listening to the Rodolfo Rivas Project. My dad has had big conversations with other people around the world and here in Geneva. He loves it and he's all crazy about it. Remember to have fun listening to it, the Rodolfo Rivas Project. But the interesting, so for me, in, in part, some of my career is a coincidence and some is not. So, um, you know, as I said, I always wanted to be a professor and it happened. You know, I was a professor. Now I'm at the WTO, but what I do here in many ways is not so different. Um, yes, I don't do the teaching and, and uh, you know, in return I have really interesting, you know, policy work to do here. But, but I'm still kind of paid to think about things I find interesting, which, which I find very, um, very appealing. Um, I think what was a coincidence is that I focused on, uh, and it wasn't a coincidence that I was interested in or working on policy issues. What was a coincidence is that it happened to be trade. I think I could have also ended up uh, being a development economist and working at the World Bank or being a monetary economist working at the Bank of International Settlements or something like that. And, and maybe one lesson also for your, for your listeners. I, I feel like many young people, and me included at the time, spent too much time thinking about what exactly, what field they should pick, for example. Should I do in economics? Should I do my PhD in neighbor economics or monetary economics or this and that? At the end of the day, the interesting questions in any subfield of economics, and, and even if you look across fields, I mean, there's really interesting questions in physics and sociology. And so I think the most important thing is, you know, just make a choice and then, and then pick, you know, whatever, whatever you find interesting um, there and just make the, make the best of it. That was Ralph Osa, chief economist at the World Trade Organization. I am Rodolfo Rivas, and welcome to my podcast. This is the first episode of our sixth season, and I could not be more excited to have a better guest than Ralph Osa, who has been serving as chief economist for the WTO for over a year after a long career as an academic. Ralph walks us through his career, describing his interests, motivations, and some of the challenges he encountered along the way. The way he describes it clearly explains the evolution in his career and how he is driven by a deep commitment to creating meaningful change by thinking about some of the most critical issues we currently face in the world and trying to inform and bring solutions to them. It was a pleasure talking to Raf, and I was glad he was here to launch the sixth season. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Subscribe, you won't regret it. The Rodolfo Rivas Project is available on all major platforms or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram, X, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Please help to spread the word by recommending us to your friends, enemies, or frenemies. A small act like liking, and subscribing, and or reviewing is greatly appreciated. The views, thoughts, and opinions shared in the conversation belong to the individuals sharing them and do not necessarily represent the views of their employers. Musical theme by Hugo Torres. Just after dawn. Good afternoon. Uh, thank you for accepting my invitation. I, I really wanted to talk to you since you joined, but it took a while. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to, uh, to have <laughs> yeah, this You said that you just started uh, doing a podcast and now like your, your second one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> back exactly. to back. <laughs> well, just a bit uh, to begin with, like, can, can you tell us a bit about... Uh, Where are you from originally? So I'm a German originally, but um, I haven't lived in Germany now for more than half of my life. I just ah. calculated the other day. So I grew up in uh, Germany and uh, I mean, I was born in a city called uh, Göttingen, 
But pretty quickly, we moved to another city called uh, Kassel, and I lived there until um, I finished um, high school. Um, I did two years of, well, first I had to do some, you know, social work that I did, um, uh, you know, at the time you still had to do uh, your military um, a year, or I did some social work, so I did some social work in Munich, um, and then I studied for uh, two years, but then I went to England, uh, then to the US, then to Switzerland, so I never... So you've been traveling a lot, but uh, going back to when you were growing up, uh, I mean, you're an economist. Yes. What... What can you trace some seeds that were planted when you were growing up that may be make you pursue that field? Yeah, I think so. So I think it was a combination of conversations I had with my parents and also um, the situation that uh, what I learned at school. And you know, with my parents, we talked a lot about um, politics, about um, you know social justice, about. Um, um, you know, the way to organize uh, society. And I think it became clear to me that economic questions are often at the, at the heart of it, right? You think about poverty, that's economics. You think about inequality, it's often uh, economics, at least if it's earnings inequality or wealth inequality, unemployment, inflation, you know, all these topics people are concerned about. So I was always interested in social sciences questions. But then in school, um, I was more interested in kind of natural sciences uh, methods. So I very much enjoyed my physics class, for example. That's what I did kind of most intensely. And economics, I think, at some point I wanted to do physics actually at university, but then, um, uh, you know, economics was a little bit the sweet spot, you know, using the uh, okay. natural science method for social sciences question, if you will. But uh, your parents were economists or? No, they were both uh, teachers, but they were just interested in, uh, in, in society. And, uh, you know, I think that's that's how it came up. You know, they were also a little bit critical of um, market economy um, at some point. And, you know, I always had this instinct that, you know, things seem to be working quite well. <laughs> <laughs> so so there has to be something that, that, that we're doing right. And I guess uh, I guess I went to, um, to university to understand why. And uh, the university, so you went to university in the UK? Well, so I did uh, two years in Germany uh, first, and it was a, uh, it was a this small private university that's actually very good, but it's it just wasn't a good fit for me because it's more for people, um, you know, who want to go into consulting or who want to you know become investment bankers or something like that. Uh, but I always knew, strangely, um, that I wanted to be a professor. Um, because and perhaps because of your parents also. Well, maybe, but I thought <laughs> I thought you know maybe because of my parents. But but for me, the idea that someone gives me money to think about something that I find interesting uh, was always uh, very appealing. Um, and and to be a professor, you know, I really wanted to go to like I should have gone just to like a regular university where you do you know regular things and 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 not something that's so. Um, you know, at, at the place I went to, we had to do a lot of internships and, and things like that, which is exactly not what I wanted, <laughs> strangely, um, at that time. So then after two years, um, I, uh, I, I left and I went to England to the London School of Economics and I stayed there. So I finished my undergrad there, master's there, PhD there, visited um, Harvard at some point, but I'm basically an LSE product. Like uh, Mick Jagger. <laughs> but uh, how was the difference? How was the difference in? You mentioned it a bit, but what was the difference in approach in teaching that you saw from German, the German system, to the UK system? 
So, I mean, it was a little bit hard for me to compare, I think, because I went to the small private university in Germany where the class size was very small. It was very interactive. It was actually a great place. It's uh, called University of Witten, Wittenherdecke. Uh, maybe not people outside of Germany um, know it, but I enjoyed it uh, very much. But it was a little bit... Um, uh, it, it just wasn't structured enough for me and, and wasn't going enough into depth because I really wanted to know the models and I really wanted to know the math behind them and I really wanted to understand mainstream economics you know, before I start uh, thinking about whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing or how things have changed or how some knowledge is outdated. I really just wanted to understand the, the basics and when I went to the LSE that's exactly what I got. You know, they do microeconomics, macroeconomics, econometrics, math, um, pretty intense, um, just regular lecturers. Um, so many students would probably prefer the experience that I had in, in Germany, but I, for me, it was exactly what I needed. And uh, going to the UK during this uh, period of time, because you have already, like, living in Europe already, by the fact of being here, it's pretty international. Mm -hmm. How did it open your world to consider, right now you're at WTO, which is global. Mm -hmm. Did this have an effect on you, like, oh, the world is bigger than just The countries. Well, that, that happened actually earlier in my life because, um, you know, after I did the year of social work, um, I wanted to do a year of something else because, interestingly, um, I needed to have two years of practical experience to be even admitted to that university I really wanted to go to. I think to. That, that is pretty... That is pretty good. No, because good. How, how do you know what you want to exactly. do if you don't? You haven't done it. Exactly, it was good. So, so I wanted to do something interesting. So I ended up um, spending a year in uh, Bolivia. So, well, the story was I wanted to go to Argentina uh, because I had some connections there. You know, I could, could work there somewhere, but then I needed to learn Spanish. I, I didn't know one word of Spanish, um, but taking classes in Argentina was too expensive. So I found a school in La Paz, Bolivia, yeah. but then basically liked it so much that I ended up staying. Uh, so I lived with, you know, a short uh, break in Argentina in Bolivia for one year and, and for me that opened the world to me so I think when I came back from that I you could have put me anywhere I would have also like for example you know I went to the LSE because it was a good university had that university been in China I would have gone to China so it had nothing to do with the country or that it was close to Germany um, in fact I didn't really like London um, because you know I didn't have any money at the time and it's very expensive it's big it's crowded all I wanted to do was study I didn't want to you know, do anything else. So for me, um, yeah, so, but, but going to Bolivia really opened uh, my horizons. Yeah, because I imagine that you also saw a new, a new continent that had like different, different ways of approaching some of the same issues that you were asking yourself how to approach them. <clears throat> Absolutely. I mean, I saw, um, I saw different perspectives. I met new people. I also saw like a um, developing country for the first time, uh, you know, in my life, uh, you know, what, what this means. We, I, I did so many cool things. I did an internship with this um, microcredit uh, NGO. So we took these um, cross-country motorcycles to go to some villages in the uh, Andes. Um, and, and, you know, we're talking to people there. And it was just fascinating for me just to see, you know, what life's look, life looks like in these, you know, remote villages and how different it is from what I uh, what I was used to and 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 obviously sparked then a lot of questions I mean what 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 can we do uh, you know to improve circumstances there what can we learn from there 
uh, from them. It was a it was a fascinating experience. And going back to London, mm-hmm. what were some of the topics that you were studying that uh, perhaps you planted the seed to what you're doing right now? Well, so it, it was a little bit boring, uh, to be honest, at first, <laughs> because it was, was always microeconomics, macroeconomics, and econometrics, and just at different levels. So first you do it in the undergrad, then you do it again in the master's, and then uh, if you don't pay attention, you do it again uh, in the, the PhD. PhD. So I, I, got, I got around that, um, which wasn't a good idea, actually. So I, I can, that's something else I can talk about later. Maybe I should have done another round of micro, macro, and econometrics, but I just couldn't take it anymore after, after having done it in the bachelor and the master's. Um, so I think, I don't know. So, so it's not, I would be lying if I said, you know, I have always been interested in international trade and that has always been my passion. Um, I was always interested in economics, And um, one thing I really appreciated about economics is I think the framework that gives it to you with which you can start thinking about all sorts of problems. And I was always interested in, in labor economics, development economics. I was interested in macroeconomics. I was interested in, uh, in monetary economics. Um, I was interested in different fields. Um, and then it was more of a coincidence, uh, to be honest. I just took a class by a professor Who was, uh, which was on international economics, but also economic geography, found that really compelling, um, you know, started working with him. Um, then he left uh, to Oxford, I remember, and, and then, you know, was assigned to another um, uh, advisor uh, who turned out to be this fantastic uh, professor. He was a young lecturer at the time. Now he's one of the most famous, uh, you know, trade economists. He's a senior professor at Princeton. Um, and uh, Steve Redding is his name, fantastic mentor. Uh, so I really just got lucky, honestly. I mean, I just ended up with him somehow, uh, ended up uh, finding the right topic. Um, what was not a coincidence, I will say, so, so maybe thinking about trade was a coincidence. What was not a coincidence was thinking about policy. I, I was always interested in, in policy. So, so, so the fact, you know, since my PhD, I've been thinking about trade policy and also the WTO uh, specifically. So that was not a coincidence because that's exactly what I wanted to understand because those are exactly the questions I used to have at home. Um, you mentioned uh, uh, something that I found really interesting. A lot of my guests actually, there's basically two types of professionals that I find in this field. Those who always thought that they were going to do what, what they're doing right now from the beginning and those who got to it by coincidence. Um, I find it interesting that that was your case because I think that was also my case. Uh, I, I started intellectual property and somehow that brought me to trade but was not trade directly. Yeah. Yeah. But the interesting, so for me, in, in part, some of my career is a coincidence and some is not. So, um, you know, as I said, I always wanted to be a professor and it happened. You know, I was a professor. Now I'm at the WTO, but what I do here in many ways is not so different. Um, yes, I don't do the teaching and, and uh, you know, in return I have really interesting, you know, policy work to do here. But, but I'm still kind of paid to think about things I find interesting, which, which I find very, um, very appealing. Um, I think what was a coincidence is that I focused on, uh, and it wasn't a coincidence that I was interested in or working on policy issues. What was a coincidence is that it happened to be trade. I think I could have also ended up uh, being a development economist and working at the World Bank or being a monetary economist working at the Bank of International Settlements or something like that. And, and maybe one lesson also for your, for your listeners I, I feel like many young people, and me included at the time, spent too much time thinking about 
what exactly, what field they should pick, for example. Should I do in economics? Should I do my PhD in neighbor economics or monetary economics or this and that? At the end of the day, they're interesting questions in any subfield of economics. And, and even if you look across fields, I mean, there's really interesting questions in physics and sociology. And so I think the most important thing is, you know, just make a choice. And then and then pick you know whatever whatever you find interesting um, there and just make the make the best of it. Uh, but I am also yeah I, I agree with that uh, because it happened in my case and I know many. But you were talking about something that maybe I would like to hear your views mm -hmm. because I also when I was studying I also made a lot of my academic decisions based on my financial circumstances mm -hmm. and that also I think limited my. The things that I thought I could do, or the things that I wanted to do, how how do you, how did you address that? No, so this this is a very important uh, point, and and also something where I think you have to find the right balance between you know not being reckless and you know getting uh, buried in student loans, uh, taking classes that are not going to generate any income, but at the same time I think you also need to make the investment when it's uh, needed. So in my case, it was very similar to yours. I mean, I moved to um, London from Germany, and I just was just shocked how expensive everything is. <laughs> I had the same budget I had in Germany. My parents, um, uh, 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 you know, gave me some money, but not much. Like, what was enough to live in, you know, a poor city in Germany? I was in England, and I just couldn't believe how expensive mm -hmm. everything was. So I ended up living very far away from LSE in a not so great apartment i mean i had great um roommates, uh, roommates <laughs> but there were bad bugs at some point you know cars burning in our street and <laughs> i couldn't even afford the underground i had to take the bus every morning um so i really kind of paid the price to be able to pursue what i do but there was one kind of critical point in my academic career where i had the opportunity in my phd so much later i had the opportunity to visit um, harvard for one semester and it cost something And it cost $5,000, I think. And I thought, I don't have $5,000, I just can't go. Um, but fortunately, my um, dad um, was able to give me the $5,000 and was insisting on, on me going. And that really changed my life. I mean, had I, I, mean, I came up with a great topic for my so-called job market paper, um, which ultimately got me uh, a job at the University of Chicago, and even the job here, frankly, because it was a... Is the one that won the exactly. essay? Exactly, it was one that won the essay award. I mean, I didn't write it at Harvard, but the idea, I, you know, I got it there. And, I mean, it was literally a, a visit that changed my life. And had I not done it for 5,000, I mean, I should have... I even took student loans and stuff, so I, I did have some uh, debt afterwards. But somehow that debt I wouldn't have incurred, and that would have been a big mistake. So I think you need to appreciate that these are really investments in your future that, um, that can pay off big time. But related to that a bit, uh, I also meet a lot of students who, for example, they dream about going to a specific university. And then if they didn't manage to do that, they think that their world is over. And I always tell them, like, you haven't even started your journey. Like, it could have taken you some way, but if you're still going to have a, I don't know if infinite number of possibilities, but you're going to have other opportunities. It doesn't end right there. Oh, absolutely, and, and I think recruiters also understand this. I mean, especially, I mean, I know the academic job market quite well because I was there so, so often. And I think there's an appreciation. Like in, so, so when I was recruiting for, so I was a professor at the University of Zurich before coming here. And there, when we recruit assistant professors, I think we know that the best PhD student from some European university is probably better than the 10th best PhD student from Harvard, let's say, 
Um, exactly, because not everyone... Uh, for, for example, I never even applied to like U.S. universities because I didn't want to do micro, macro, and econometrics again. So there's all these idiosyncratic choices people make. Maybe you want to stay in Europe or wherever your country is, um, um, you know, because that's just where you want to be. So I do think recruiters understand that um, that um, um, you know. I mean, it's not. There's many routes to success. I think the only important thing though to to keep in mind is that you you do want to expose yourself to the uh, to the right kind of environment that challenges you and that gives you the information you need so for example if you want to have a good career in uh, in, in as an academic economist um, you know you I mean say you want and say you want to do that in I don't know in Europe I'm just saying Europe now because that's where we're sitting right now I mean, you just have to make sure you go to a good university in your country, at least. You know, don't go... Like, for example, had I stayed at the university I was at before, um, and it was a fantastic university for other purposes, but for an academic career, that would have been... Uh, yeah, that wouldn't have been The right me. choice. Yeah. And what were... So, when... What were the policy questions that you asked during your... When you were doing your essay? So, during my PhD, um, so the main... A uh, question um, I was asking is um, why we need the WTO, uh, why we need trade negotiations, because it's actually it's actually quite interesting. Um, because if you talk to economists, economists always tell you that trade is such a good thing, and that trade liberalization is a, such a good thing. So then you start wondering. That is what we believe. Like that's why exactly. we do what we're doing. Exactly. <laughs> But then you know, if 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 trade is such a good thing, then why don't I just liberalize? Uh, you know, why do I need you to liberalize first uh, so that I also liberalize? You know, why, why is it, you know, what are we even talking about? So what are trading, I guess the fundamental question is what are trade negotiators negotiating about? You know, why don't I just liberalize my trade and, and, and let it be? And it's, it's, an, it's, an, it's an interesting question. And the, the main theory out there uh, is so-called uh, uh, terms of trade theory of trade negotiations. And the idea is that Well, if we were small countries, so countries that didn't have any market power in world markets, then it would really be a unilateral thing. You know, I can just, you know, reduce my tariffs and it doesn't really matter what, what anyone else does. But then what this terms of trade theory says is, well, that's not quite right. Because if I, basically what it says is I can use uh, tariffs to benefit at the expense of um, other countries. It says that, you know, if I impose my import tariff, then this is going to reduce, if I increase my import tariffs, this is going to reduce uh, world demand for the good I'm importing, and this is going to reduce the world price, and this is going to be good for me and bad for the country that's um, exporting it. So that's kind of the standard theory out there, and it's perfectly um, valid. I just thought, you know, when I, when I read this for the first time, and that's when I visited um, Harvard, I thought, you know, this is a perfectly beautiful theory, but somehow it doesn't seem to be Uh, what policymakers are talking about. I mean, you never hear anyone talk about uh, the terms of trade um, uh, at, the, uh, at the WTO now. In the, in the meantime, I've understood that um, you can reframe this theory in terms of market access, and then it you know, becomes much more aligned with what, um, what I think policymakers talk about. But anyways, at the time, I thought we need a new theory. So I came up with, um, with a new one that was more focused on what nowadays, so from, from my perspective now, you can almost think of it as um, tariffs uh, as, a, as an instrument of industrial policy. So, so the theory that I developed was all about, 
you know, I want to uh, impose importeros because this is going to make my country a more attractive uh, location for uh, manufacturing firms. But I do that as you, at your expense because they come from you to me. So if I'm trying to get your farms, basically, and you're trying to get mine, then at the end of the day, you know, if we both do this at the same time, we are unsuccessful. So we are stuck in some prisoner's dilemma. Uh, I try to benefit at your expense. You try to benefit at my expense. So it makes sense for us to sit down and uh, agree on reciprocal tariff reduction. So that's, and that's exactly what we're doing at the, uh, at the WTO. So it was basically, in one sentence, a new theory of trade negotiations. Um. And when you were doing this, uh, you did it because I also another question that I get is a lot of people when they study it, when they're studying it in university or whatever, one thing is when they're actually studying it and one thing is when they're actually doing it in practice. Mm -hmm. how, how did you, you were saying that some of the things that you came up in your theory, you only realized like later when actually you were mm -hmm. seeing it for in the real. What, what uh, were some of the things that you learned later. I mean, it's still something I want to do, by the way. Maybe I should ask you. We should, <laughs> we should turn it around one day and ask people, well, what do you think you're negotiating about? Because there seems to be this attitude. I mean, it's a bit of a mercantilist mindset, right? That, that somehow policymakers are convinced that, um, that uh, you know, if I reduce my tariffs, that that's a concession to you and that you need to make some, I need some concession from you for me to do that. So this kind of mindset Um, uh, uh, seems to be prevailing here and I think economists have had some hard time kind of reconciling that with economic theory and, and we've, we've succeeded and so I do think we kind of speak the same language now. So what's, what's the same and what's, um, what's different? I mean, um, um, so, so maybe one thing I could say is, well, well, first I would say that many of the things that I've learned in academia I think I, I can actually apply here. Uh, more than I thought, um, you know, I have to say, because I, I do think, I, I do think, you know, I learned, you know, thinking through some of the main kind of channels that are important when you uh, conduct uh, trade policy, and, and that turns out to be relevant here. I think the big difference really is that, um, um, well, how should I say this? I think, I think what academics really have to offer is they have to offer um, uh, rigor, they have to offer um, tools, uh, they have a lot of time, they have a lot of resources, <laughs> and you know, they are really able to answer a particular question well, much better than we can here. But what we have to offer here, uh, we have to offer um, relevance, so we know what the relevant questions are, and somehow that doesn't necessarily trickle down to the academic community, and we also um, can have impact. So I think, you know, the relevance and the impact, that's really what fascinates me about my, my job now. So, for example, last year, I went to like a major um, academic conference in the, in the U.S., actually to two. And I was struck because, you know, you look at the uh, state of trade, you look at the state of multilateral uh, cooperation, you look at the state of globalization, and you're thinking, well, there's really something going on here. Uh, that we need to understand, that we need to inform. I mean, we're kind of at a crossroads when it comes to globalization, but then I go to the academic conference and nobody talks about it. You know, they all talk about their um, models and their um, uh, identification issues uh, and, and so on. And it's all very impressive and all very important, but there was a bit this disconnect. Um, disconnect. Yeah. Um, so what I'm trying to do now is really bring these two worlds together because they have... They have, they're very good at coming up with answers. I think we're very good at coming up with 
questions. We just need to talk to each other. And they also want to have impact, and we can have impact. And that's really... Um, I mean, I'll give you an example maybe on, on impact. Um, you know, I had this one idea at the university about, um, you know, why trade can be part of the solution when it comes to um, climate change. And um, the idea is, is very simple. The idea is that, um, you know, we all know that there's economic gains from trade um, when countries specialize in what they're relatively good at. So my argument is there's also environmental gains from trade if countries specialize in what they're relatively green at. And the differences between the two is that the economic gains from trade materialize naturally as the result of market forces, but the environmental gains from trade need some help. They need some policy, uh, whatever, carbon price or something like that, that helps um, uh, uh, people internalize this environmental externality. Now, I had this idea at the university, you know, you write a little paper about it and, you know, 10 people find it interesting, <laughs> but then, you know, you come here, you share this idea. Yeah, first, first, you know, that's not how people think about it, but then you say it 10 times, and at some point, you know, you get some traction, and now I go to COP28, and the director general is, uh, uh, you know, saying that at COP28, I mean, that's I mean, that's something, that's the kind of impact, the immediate impact I think you could never have as an, uh, as an academic. As a purely academic, but you're you are right about what you're talking, that there has to be this communication, because otherwise everyone is talking in their own little world. Exactly. And, but also sometimes I feel that when we are here in Geneva, and maybe this is something that you're trying to address, I mean, Geneva is so beautiful and we are negotiating in front of the lake It is like a little bubble that we are in, and sometimes we are oblivious to what's going on, even though we see the news and everything, but we're oblivious to what's happening, perhaps because we don't see the consequences firsthand. Um, and that is, I guess, something that you are also concerned about. Yeah, but it's funny because it's a, it's an, I mean, I never thought about it like that, but, but now that you say it, it's a, it's a bubble in two ways, because... On the one hand, you're right, it's like this pristine place, you know, now we don't see the French Alps, but only <laughs> I see them, I see Mont Blanc if I'm lucky. Uh, so on the one hand, you live in this like perfect place and, and feel a little bit disconnected from the problems of the world. On the other hand, I sometimes feel that, uh, you, know, um, uh, you know, some of the tensions that we have among members uh, here in Geneva, once you get out of Geneva, um, it's a little bit less tense. Um, so, so in a weird way, Uh, you have this um, yeah, this, this bubble among you know the people actually engaging in policy here, where sometimes um, maybe things are a little bit more dramatic than they need to be. Uh, but on the other hand, you have this like pristine uh, environment where maybe sometimes you don't see the seriousness of uh, of problems. But yeah, I mean we're trying to. I mean that's why it's important to get out and 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 travel and talk to people. Um, also talk to businesses. I really like talking to businesses. Um, you know, just so you get a sense of what the real-world implications of uh, policy actually are. Now, I wanted to go back a bit to uh, your career. So you said you wanted to be an academic, and mm -hmm. that's what you were pursuing. Then you talked about impact. Was that a motivating factor that you perhaps said, like, I have to have to do something else, something more than just being an academic? Or how did that happen? Yeah, exactly. So, so well, a little bit of that, and there was one other dimension. So. So I became an academic. I was first an assistant professor and associate professor at the University of Chicago, the business school. Then I came to Zurich. I was a full professor here, the department chair at some point. And, um, and what I... Um, so I always liked my job, but I felt like, you know, maybe in terms of impact, it's not quite um, what I want. Even though I do think you can actually have a lot of impact as an academic, but, but there's not that many 
uh, that can actually um, have that ultimately. Ideas, I think, are very powerful, but you have to have really big ideas for that to work. Um, but for me, it was something else really that made me change course a little bit, because if you're an academic, it's a it's it, it's a it's a bit of a lonely um, affair. So you know, you're writing your own papers. So I did a lot of my papers by myself. That was also my stupidity. I would never do that again. Um, but then, even if you have co-authors, you know, you talk to them occasionally. But um, I mean, you still do a lot of work by yourself. And I just really like people. And then I became the department chair reluctantly. Um, so I had to manage um, all of a sudden this big economics department was, if you count everyone and to all the secretaries and so on, it's almost 300 people. And you have to deal with like teams, you have to deal with people problems and you have to make an organization work. And I really loved that. Um, so, so what made this job here at the WTO so attractive to me is that on the one hand, I, I, I have my content. I mean, I'm the chief economist. Like, I have to think about economics. I have to think about trade. I have to think about policy. I have to think about all the things I'm passionate about. And I can have the impact. But on the other hand, I'm also the director of the Economic Research and Statistics Division. So I'm also a manager. I have to organize a team. I have to make sure we have a... Uh, we structure our meetings in, in ways that they're successful. We have a work plan that works. We measure our success in the right way. And, and, and so for me, it, that's why I'm so happy. It's, it's, it's really the mix of like Both. substantive work, yeah. but also managerial work that's really excellent. And um, I was curious about how, how, because from what you're saying, it seems like it was like a easy transition, but uh, was it or what were some of the challenges that you found? So it, it was easier than you might have expected, I think. But so one thing that really helped, and I think I also wouldn't have gotten the job otherwise, that I was the department chair. So at least all the people issues I had yeah. seen before. Yeah. You know, if you have to manage an economics department, there's also strong personalities. <laughs> you don't really have any power as the department chair. And it's the same in an international organization too. You know, you can't really fire anyone. So you have to really work. It's, it's like a mayor. Yeah. You're married to everyone. So you have to really make it, make it work with, uh, with the resources um, you have. Uh, so so, so I, I kind of had some experience in that. And, and as I said, I really like people. I get along with people and I genuinely do. Um, so that part was kind of easy for me. Uh, in terms of the content, um, I mean, it's a little bit different, of course, because now I have to be much more focused on current events. As an academic, you're not really interested in, you know, what is the effect of the Red Sea crisis on the WTO trade forecast. I mean, you don't write an academic paper about that, but that's what I get asked all the time now. So I think I have to, I had to focus more on current events. But the big difference is really the politics, um, in a good way and a bad way. I mean, but there must have been politics before in the, you know, but, but you know, like micro micro politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, there's there's like the people politics in the department, but that's not what I mean. I mean more okay. like the. I mean, more like, um, you know, as an academic, you know, I don't know, you have an interview on TV, you say something, I mean, you know, nobody really cares. But now if I say the wrong thing, uh, you know, people, people do care um, because it becomes this WTO position, so I have to be much more careful. Also, the research we do, you know, as an academic, you have this freedom of research and teaching. You can basically do whatever you want, um, and, and, and unless it's completely outrageous, I don't think anyone is going to question that. I mean, it's not that we don't have freedom here, but of course, you know, if we put out a controversial uh, paper, then members will come and complain. And, and that's, that's, it's not a, I mean, that's how it should be. Um, I think, or, or they come to discuss, you know, I think that's fine. But that's a, so, so you have this, this whole new world to deal with that, you know, now people are really um, 
watching what you're doing, but the upside of it is that you also have impact. People also listen to what you're saying, uh, you know, as I was saying before, because otherwise they wouldn't wanna, they, they wouldn't pay so much attention. So in, in some sense, that was a bit of a surprise, I have to say, coming here. You know, to, to be honest, uh, coming here, I thought, you know, what, what is the government of a big country going to care, you know, what report uh, we are writing or not writing? Uh, you know, because what, what effect does it have on them? And, and I learned that they do care. <laughs> and and, and it's, it's tough in many ways, um, but it's mostly great because it means like what we do is actually important. important. And you talked a bit about some of the issues that, I mean, you have to think about current developments, yes. what's happening, but what are, and you talked about uh, climate change. Yes. What are some of the other topics You say that we, you get your salary from mm -hmm. thinking about it. What are some of the other topics that are in your mind at the moment? Yeah, so for me, um, I think we're facing uh, three key challenges. Uh, we need to maintain peace and security. I mean, the security issue is um, you know, absolutely central at the moment. Uh, we need to reduce poverty and inequality. And we need to um, build a sustainable economy all against the background of a rapidly um, of this um, uh, real digital revolution. Um, so I think those are kind of the three challenges and the one, you know, mega trend I think we have to, we have to manage. Um, and, and, you know, to get my thinking organized, uh, we wrote the whole like, World Trade Report last year um, uh, about that, where we asked, you know, to what extent can trade be part of the um, a solution when it comes to building a more secure, inclusive and uh, sustainable world. And, um, and that was, you know, really important for me to think that through. And now what we do this year is we go a little bit more into depth. So the next World Trade Report is going to be about inclusiveness, um, you know, basically trying to understand, um, you know, why things have not worked out for some countries or some people, either because the countries have been left behind or the people have been left behind. What can the WTO do? What can trade do um, to also um, help them? Um, and then the last question I had is... Uh, What what do you see as uh, some of the possible outcomes that we might have for the ministerial that is coming up in a few weeks? Well, you we are a member of driven organizations. So <laughs> you probably know more than uh, than than I do. Um, I I think, I mean, what was so remarkable about MC12 was that we had a meaningful outcome. In you, this. you arrived after the. I arrived oh, after. Okay. But, but just a few months after. Yeah, well, I arrived uh, pretty much a year ago, so on 4th of uh, uh, January yeah. uh, last year. But still, you know, having in this tense geopolitical environment, having 164 countries come together uh, and make some, you know, meaningful, um, come to some meaningful outcomes, for example, on fisheries, just to give you one example, I, I think the, uh, you know, that this is possible, uh, I think was, was, was amazing. So what we need for MC13, we need something similar. We, we need some meaningful outcomes, some outcomes that actually matter, not just because I care about the outcomes, uh, but also because I think we really need to send a signal to the world that multilateralism in general, and the WTO in particular, um, are still able to deliver. Um, one reason I'm optimistic is, you know, I mean, this is kind of on a, on a smaller scale for the world, but important for the secretariat. You know, we had um, a budget, uh, uh, there have been like issues with our budget now for uh, more than a decade where um, members have never increased the nominal budget. So in real terms, it's been falling and falling and falling. When I came last year, it was cold here, much colder than now because we had to turn down the heat. And, um, uh, you know, now 
members um, agreed to increase our budget um, slightly. No, it's, it's not that we're going to have all this like all these new resources now, but at least there was some movement. And and for me, the the just the symbolism of this that even today in this difficult situation we can have 164 countries come together and and say yes we're going to do something we're going to invest something in this place even if it's not that much but it's something uh, because we're serious about this place and and we think it's an important part of uh, uh, the challenges important part of the solution to the challenges we're facing that for me i mean you can feel it in the hallways here you know people are just more um are just happier to work here again and um, I hope we get something similar on MC13. Now, in terms of the topics, of course, we all hope there's some progress on the dispute settlement. Um, what exactly? Um, I don't know. Uh, we hope that there's some progress on the integration of the plurilaterals. Um, we hope that there's some meaningful outcome on agriculture, fisheries, of course, not just the ratification, but also the second stage, something on development, perhaps. But for me, it, it's, it's really more about keeping the momentum uh, going. I actually, uh, I mean, I was in those discussions of the budget, and I didn't. I mean, I didn't attach the the significance that you are mm. talking about. But now thinking about it, yeah, I think that it shows that there's commitment to. It's a real breakthrough. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, yeah, yeah. I think so because, and I mean, there's also real problems because our uh, you know real budget has been has been falling. But I think just just the fact that after 10 years, agree, in in yeah. this difficult geopolitical situation, difficult financial situation, members come together and say, and and for each individual member, it's peanuts, right? I mean, we're not talking about anything, but but just the the yeah, just the 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 fact that it happened, I think, is really is really crucial. And it also signals like there has been momentum. I mean, that's another instance of where there has been. I mean, first MT12, and exactly, it keeps moving on. Exactly. Yeah. So I hope uh, I really hope that uh, that that members can can build on that in MC13, and we are certainly uh, happy to do whatever we can to support that. Well, Ralph, there's like the last part of the of the podcast is like a pretty quick uh, questions where okay. the the idea is for you to I'll answer I'll ask a question and you answer what comes to your mind. Okay. And hopefully you'll Let's give see. something <clears throat> interesting. So, what's the best advice you've ever given? That's a good question. What's the best advice I've ever given? I think you have to remember that life is a marathon and not a sprint. So ultimately, you need to do what you're passionate about because otherwise, you're going to run out of steam. Actually, that many say something similar to maybe that's something to think about. <laughs> <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Um, if I wasn't an economist, I would be a physicist. Yeah, you mentioned. <laughs> What's the best advice? In fact, in fact, I have some physicists visiting from the University of Zurich today because I liked them so much. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best advice you've ever gotten? What is the best advice I've ever gotten? Um, I mean, there must be a more profound advice that I received, <laughs> but what comes to mind now Uh, because we talked about it before, as my dad saying, you really need to go to Harvard. <laughs> And it really changed my life. Yeah. Um, what's something you wish you had known 20 years ago? <laughs> I guess one thing I wish uh, I had known is, you know, how this, how this all is going to, uh, you know, how this would all pan out, because I've been working now for so many years on becoming a tenured professor. And pretty much as soon as I was one, Um, I left, left. Uh, the university, <laughs> I mean, not quite, you know, it's been a few years, 
But it's it's kind of ironic that you work so hard for a goal that you think um, is so important, and then once you've achieved it, you're willing to um, you know try something something else. You know, may, maybe I should say. So so one thing that I really missed in my academic career it's it's a very linear thing. You always kind of do the same thing, and you get very good at it. But but what I what I what I wish I had learned earlier is that exposing yourself to different environments and different. Um, different things is also very enriching uh, for you personally. Even if it's a bit challenging, but that's exactly what makes you grow. Yes, exactly. Uh, pineapple in pizza? Mm, I can eat it. <laughs> I don't love it, but I can eat it. Drama or comedy? Grammar. Uh, Who is your favorite artist of all time? My favorite artist of all time, Bach. And how would you like to be remembered? How would I like to be remembered? You know, at the end of the day, I don't really care if I'm remembered or not. I just want to do the right thing. Also here at the WTO, you know, I'm not here because I need someone to, uh, uh, you know, remember me or say it was me. I just want to be part of the solution to the problems that, that we're having. And then whether someone remembers that uh, I was part of it or not is not so important to me. Thank you very much, Raf. It has been really great talking to you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This was the Rodolfo Rivas Project. I hope you loved it. Can you dig it? Don't.